Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I have to tell you something, people. The Super Bowl is this Sunday, and I'm very excited, being a lifelong Eagles fan. And I have to tell you, the last time, the last two times they played, I've watched, and I've been disappointed. They played when I was in high school, and I remember watching the game, and they played the Raiders, and my parents let me and my friends have some beer. They let us split an eight-pack of those little seven-ouncers. And then the next time they played, they played the Patriots. And I remember I was on vacation in Puerto Vallarta. And I came back the night before and I had Montezuma's Revenge. And I barely made it through the game and they lost. And this weekend they play. And it's a great time that I move back. Philly's going crazy. And it's just wonderful. And the Super Bowl is an amazing time. And that's why I'm very happy to have my guest on today who's actually a three-time Super Bowl champion. He's uh, had an amazing career. He was in a... He's in the College Football Hall of Fame. I heard he was an amazing shot porter in high school, but that's just maybe rumor. I don't know. <laughs> and my guest is Randy Cross. How are you doing, Randy? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. No, that's a, that's a confirmed rumor. Okay. I was, uh, I, was the number, I was the number two guy in the country when I was uh, a senior in high school. Did you ever think of going to the Olympics? Because, you know, you it shows you're a great athlete, but did you think about trying for the Olympics, or was football always your goal? Oh, absolutely. Um and, you know, the way it turned out, I mean, the guy that I beat for the state championship my uh, senior year was a guy named Terry Albritton. I went to UCLA. He went to Stanford. Um, we both tried. He, he, he tried football. He lasted a couple of years. But he set the world record. I want to say our senior year in high school would have been right around 70. I mean, senior year in college. So around 76, 77. Um, he sets the world record for the 16 pounder. Um, never got to go, got a chance to go to the Olympics because of, uh, the wonderful, you know, Moscow ban back in uh, 1980. But, uh, that was my whole focus when I was in high school. It had nothing to do with really football. It was all about, I wanted to be an Olympic, Olympic athlete because my, my big idol was a guy named Randy Matson who had, uh, he'd won a gold medal and he'd been the world record holder. Now, how did you end up getting started in shop book? Because I know your your father was an actor. And did you ever want to get into the yeah. acting career? I mean, it's very, I mean, your family, though, it's great. Your dad was a successful actor. You're a successful football player and analyst. How did you sit there? How did the football come up? I mean, and did you ever think about acting? Um, well, yeah, I, I definitely did. I used to go on calls and stuff with my dad. I used to sit and read lines with him. You know, for his, uh, he'd go out, go out for his calls, and audition things. Um, and I, I'd, I'd read the other part, having fun with him. Um, I did a little bit of that, but honestly, um, I, I think the whole, the whole process of growing up, watching him just wait for the phone to ring, had a pretty good influence on me deciding that I, I better do something a little bit different. Um, but yeah, I mean, I really. I, I had given it some serious, some serious consideration. Now you have a podcast, and I listened to it. Uh, it's a video podcast. It's on iTunes, and it's uh, Unsafe Spaces USA. And I watched your episode uh, last week, I believe, and you talked about the Eagles being a designated victim, and you're someone who knows mm-hmm. football. And why do you think that? Is it because you were part of a dynasty, and also the Patriots, I mean, let's be honest, are also a dynasty. What, what makes your insight that you think that this, do you think it will be close at all, or what, what's your take on this game? Oh, it should be. <clears throat> it should be, but, um, you know, I, I, if, if 
just, I mean, to give Eagle fans hope, I'm, I'm not saying there's no chance. I mean, Jim Carrey could have, could have walked away with the girl in Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> so I am saying there's a chance. But, you know, I, I think when you looked at that semifinal group and you looked at the quarterbacks involved, it was a pretty stacked deck. Um, if Nick Foles can have an out-of-body experience, if that defense can, can have kind of an out-of-body experience um, and, and do to the Patriots what they did to Yeah, I mean, definitely they could. I mean, how often have we seen games go, especially in big games, kind of like that NFC Championship game where the, the one team takes it down and scores immediately, and you look at it and go, wow, that looked really easy. And then they don't, they can't play dead after that. So there's there's a chance. I think there's a chance. But you know, history and everything going to form, I would I would say not much of a chance. Now you've played with some great quarterbacks. Well, what what is your take on Brady, and where do you rank him as in the in the history of the best of? Some people say he's the greatest of all time. Some people say it's Belichick. Where do you? Because you're an insider and you know the game, and you know more than most people. I mean, most people just talk. You see a guy at a bar going, "Oh yeah, Brady sucks," or whatever, and it's like, no, he's a professional, you know. But what's your take on where he ranks? Well, you know, sadly, there's when it comes to sports and sports talk specifically, there's nothing valued less than an informed opinion. Um, so if you've got a real point of reference, I guess people would like to dismiss it a lot easier because they can, <laughs> I guess because they can. But, you know, I, I look at it really pretty simply. It's, it, it's one of those things when you try to compare eras, it's, I think it's damn near impossible because I know there were, there were people like my dad's age, and you know my pop would have been you know early '90s about now, but he'd argue till he was blue in the face that the old Browns and Otto Graham and Johnny Unitas were the greatest to ever do what they did, and a lot of people in Green Bay and in the, in the Midwest would argue that same thing of the the Packers in the '60s and and go down through the whole decades as far as the different eras and the different groups. I, I just think the game is so different now. Um, physically, it's different. Uh, stylistically, it's different. Um, Rules-wise, it's extremely different. I mean, you didn't see – I mean, George Bland had played till what, 43 years old? But that was only because he was a kicker. <laughs> and, he and he occasionally played quarterback. So, you know, if if – if they would have wrapped, you know, quarterbacks like Montana and whatnot in bubble wrap like they do currently and basically said, you know, you just can't touch them, those guys might have lasted, lasted well into their 40s too. But that game was – it was a lot more vicious back then. So you went to UCLA and when you played football. Now, when you were playing, you ended up being All-American. At what point – did you did you think you were going to go pro, or when does when does someone who ends up becoming a pro, or just even get drafted, and you got drafted in the second round? At what point did you sit there and say this is a possibility? And did you want did you had had you dreamed of being a professional football player besides just getting in the Olympics? Had you dreamed to be a professional football player? Hey, you know, funny thing is, my my sport was baseball growing up, and I read every book I could get my hands on. 
you know, about Hank Aaron or Willie Mays or Mickey Mantle or Babe Ruth or Luke Gehrig. I mean, all the baseball, all the great baseball players. And, you know, you can go to libraries when I was a kid, and there were books, and they, they weren't exactly epic novels, but there were books about these guys' life stories, and I used to read this stuff, and I wanted to be a baseball player, something fierce. But, you know, I didn't even think about playing in the NFL, frankly, till probably the, the spring after my junior year in college. We were getting ready to do, because um, the year before, you know, it's, it's always the rising class that the NFL's looking at. And the year before, you know, I, they had let us all work out. I'd done really well, and I talked to some scouts, and I hadn't even thought about it after that. And we did our workout then my junior year, and I was approached by a guy named Red Hickey, who was a you know, famous scout for the Dallas Cowboys and Gil Brandt. Red Hickey had also been a head coach with the San Francisco 49ers, you know, back in the, I think, late 50s, early 60s. And, and he made a point to come up to me and say, you know, you're not paying much attention to this, he says, but you do know you're going to get drafted in the first round or two, right? Okay. And I kind of looked at him like, uh, no. <laughs> and he goes, oh, oh yeah, because <laughs> you're, you're going really early. Um, so, you know, that was really my first, and my first exposure at all. And really to motivate me, because my position coach, who was Terry Donahue, who's, who's also in the College Football Hall of Fame as a coach, uh, he was my offensive line coach. He was there when, the, when I was told that. So year, just constantly drumming into my head, you know, as a motivating factor. But that was when it first sort of came upon me. It wasn't like nowadays. I mean, you do a, 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 a camp for 10-year-olds or a camp <laughs> for 8th graders. or And there's kids there that say they're going to play you know, I'm going to play in the NBA. I'm going to play in the NFL. I'm going to be a. I I had no idea that was even possible when I was a kid. Well, you know what you know what fascinates me too is because now the the, the draft is such a big media event, and with social media, it's all you know going crazy and with cell phones. But what was it like for you? when you waiting around for the draft, because it's not like now it's televised. I mean, it's so, it's so funny. I look at some of the old NFL games, and I just look at some of the old stuff, and I'm like, you know, it was such a simpler time, and, and you know, now it's changed so much. Like, even with sports, with the newspapers, you know, the Philadelphia, Philadelphia Daily News used to be just a, a Bible of sporting stuff, and now it's just like 20 pages, and it's just not as good. What was it like for you on <laughs> draft day? I mean, what, when you're sitting there, were you sitting with your family, or do you, you were an All-American, so you knew you were going to get drafted, but how? What is the waiting game for someone? Well, back then, I mean, there was no combine. You you ran your forties, you did your testing, you know, like I said, at that spring after your junior year, and there wasn't anything, you know, after that per se. You might have had a couple of interviews. They might come out and talk to you. Um, so you you had to give them a number you were going to be at and I gave my my parents my home number so for that day I went back home and uh you know the draft started pretty doggone early for me I think it I think it started like at 10 a.m. east coast so that's back when they were doing it out of like either a a, a hotel banquet room or they might have still been just doing it in the offices of the NFL because you had to give them the number, and when it, when it did ring, uh, the first time it rang, 
I knew the draft. I was listening on the radio to updates, and they had said, because it wasn't on TV, obviously, but they had made mention that the draft was now, you know, somewhere in the low 20s of the first round. So when the phone rang, and back then it was on the wall in my kitchen, by the way, and there was a cord on it. Uh, <laughs> we all had so, that. <laughs> yeah. We had a long cord, though. We, we were progressive. We had like a bunch of 12 foot cord. Because your dad was an um, actor. <laughs> he knew what was going yeah, on. Yeah, the, stretch, the, stretchy, the stretchy one. Um, so it rang, and I answered it. And actually, the guy on the other end was the offensive line coach for the Cleveland Browns, uh, a guy named Rod Humanick. And he had been the head football coach at Cal State Northridge, which back then was called Northridge State in the San Fernando Valley in L.A. And I had been at camps, and I had seen him, so I was familiar with him. And so he talks, hey, how you doing, blah, blah, blah. This is Rod Humanick from the Cleveland Browns. You know, how would you feel about uh, us picking you in the first round here? It was like pick 24 or something in the first round. And like an idiot, my first reaction was honest. And I said, oh, you mean like Cleveland, like in Ohio? Like it snows there a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> it was a fairly brief conversation after that. Uh, they ended up drafting a guy. Uh, he might have he wanted to draft me, but I think he figured it was a little less than uh, maybe a lukewarm response. Um, they ended up drafting a, a fullback out of Purdue named uh, Mike Pruitt. So I, I lasted until the 10th the pick of the uh, second round, I think. So were you excited when the Niners picked you? I mean, did you have a did you have a team that you wanted to possibly go to that in your head that you said I would really like to play for this team? Um, not really. I, you know, I, like I like I said, I didn't really watch NFL back then that much. I was aware of it, um, and that was you know we're talking about you know seventy six. So this was right in the middle of the Steelers' first you know real dynasty run. They had just won two Super Bowls and um, just a just an amazing time. I know I had a, a buddy named named Ray Penny, who was a center from the University of Washington. He ended up getting drafted by them, um, first or second round. I, I I honestly had, you know, though I was born in New York, I had lived my entire life in Southern California, so I had a very narrow niche of teams that I, I was kind of hoping would draft me. Because I wasn't a real fan of, of really, really cold weather. And, you know, I figured, hey, the Chargers, the Rams, the Niners, the Cowboys, you know, those kinds of teams were my, were my hope to play where I wasn't going to have to live in snow. That was, about, that was my, my only prerequisite. Plus, back then, I didn't look at, I wasn't looking at football as being a career. That wasn't, you know, playing, you know, I, I just figured out I was going to play much less, you know, playing 10 or 12 or 13 13 seasons in the NFL. You know, in fact, I actually had made a mistake after I got drafted of saying that in an interview with one of the local media from San Francisco, which got on a bulletin board in our practice facility with highlighters, you know, about, <laughs> hey, it's just football. It's just a game. I don't know how, how, how long I really want to play it. And I'm reading this on the billboard saying to myself, you know what, that wasn't really a smart thing to say. <laughs> and all of, a sudden, all of a sudden behind me, Monty Clark, who was the new head coach, he says, if you don't get your butt out on the field, your career is going to be a lot shorter than you think. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> now, what was it like being in camp as a 
rookie? I mean, is it, you know, they always hear stories, you know, that, you know, they busted your chops and, and you're a lineman. So, I mean, you know, you guys are tough guys. What was it like being a rookie? Was it, was it hard on you? Did they really bust your chops because you were first year or what was it like? Well, I was, I, I was joining a team in the 76 Niners. Um, and we were, we turned out, we were eight and six that year, almost made the playoffs. And they had been pretty good relatively recently under Dick Nolan, you know, with Brody and Spurrier at quarterback, and they had a really good defense. We had a boatload of veteran players, guys that had, you know, been in the league six to ten years and and real familiar names and whatnot. So, you know, my, my first instinct was to sort of keep my head down and do my job and not really try to draw too much attention to myself. <laughs> I figured that, that was that was route one to survival. Um, you know, and I was lucky enough to start not from day one, but maybe from day three or so uh, of camp. So I, I had I had a hard enough time trying to, you know, tread water and learn my craft, much less you know, worry about how many, how many veterans and who was really around me. But, you know, the, the hazing and all that was in full swing. I mean, they'd ask you to sing your alma mater, your fight song during dinner at training camp. And, you know, the veterans would hand you all their equipment and you have to carry it off the field or all, all kinds of little things like that. It was, it was never, never anything as asinine as some of the fraternity type things that, that went on when they, when you think of hazing, but it was mainly it was fairly good natured. Now, how does a lineman or any player, in fact, learn? You have to learn a whole playbook, and you have to learn the the audibles and the calls. How hard is that? Because you know we watch it as a person who watched. I've watched football my whole life. We hear them giving us signals, and then you know now there's the stutter cap to try to get them off. Was it a really big process to learn all the plays and just to get in sync? Because it is such a well-oiled machine. Well, that's one thing that was an advantage for me is I, I had played center and guard. So most offenses sort of the quarterback's the guy in charge, but the line runs through the center as far as the calls. So, you know, during my career, I got used to the fact of making the calls or, you know, at least having significant input when I wasn't the center. Um, and that's on not only just on run blocking, but also on pass blocking and protections. So that's, it's incumbent, at least I was always taught that way. If you're going to learn your position, especially as a lineman, you should learn all of them. You should be conversant as to what everybody's supposed to be doing, especially if you're going to be, have to function ever as that guy in the middle, as, as the center, because, you know, the center in a lot of ways is the guy up front that's, that's designating for the quarterback. Now, how brutal was it in the trenches? You know, back then, you know, you hear stories about Conrad Dobler and the people being dirty and just, you know, playing, you know, aggressive. What was it like? And then how long would it take you to recover? Because I always wonder, you know, Lyman, you guys are getting hit around and you, you always think you have to be bruised. And, you know, it, it has to be for a while. What was it like being in the trenches? Was it just you had to be badass to survive? Well, you really did, and you know the. Besides not knowing I was going to play football, um, the other thing I never really did until after my, probably going into my second year or so in the NFL, 
um, which is highly unusual, by the way. I never lifted weights. I mean, not a, only if something fell on me. I mean, I never lifted weights. I was one of those guys, every time I lifted weights, I got sore. And I kind of figured if I didn't do it for a while, I wasn't sore anymore. So it made common sense that you don't lift weights. Um, but I was always taught very, very early on about technique and quickness and agility and, and the value of that. And I thought I could get by with just that, you know, as a professional. And it was pointed out to me um, rather abruptly uh, and, and purely physically by some grown men <laughs> in the game um, that, yeah, you know what, you might want to lift some weights. You might want to get stronger because, you know, there's a difference between competing against, and there still is now to this day, as much as they work out and lift, the difference between college football and professional football is light years different because it's just, you, you, there's no comparison between competing um, for a living against, you know, 24 to 35 year old men and competing against, you know, <laughs> teenagers to early 20 year olds. It just, it wasn't even close. And there was one guy from the uh, Houston Oilers. In fact, he was an old Kansas City chief back in Stram's Super Bowl winning teams by the name of Curly Culp. Okay. He went into the Hall of Fame a couple of years ago. And um, Curly impressed me quite early in my rookie year uh, during a game down there in Houston with a with a forearm ripped to my chin, which got me several stitches, that I might want to get a little bit stronger, and uh, to in order to compete at that level. So that was that was my sort of my introduction. But the whole thing about being sore <clears throat> and being in the being in the pits and hitting and all that stuff, it, as the year goes on, sometime around 12, week twelve, you're sore all the time. You know, when the season starts, you're you're cool by Wednesday. Then about a month later, you're cool by Thursday. Then about a month after that, you're cool by Friday. And then sometime around week 12, week 13, you're just sore all the time. You, it never stops. So you got to learn how to. That's the other thing you have to learn how to do is take care of your body. Right. So you're playing, you're playing in the NFL, and then now, now eventually in 81, you go to the Super Bowl. What was that like for you, just for the fact that, one, as you said, growing up, you weren't a huge football fan. But now you're sitting there, and you're in this, this Super Bowl. What, how can, can you even explain what the feeling is when the, when the last, the gun goes off, the game's over, and you've won the NFC Championship and or have the right to go to the Super Bowl. What's that feeling like? Um, you know, the, the more you do it, the more you really appreciate it. So maybe that first time we did it when we beat Dallas to go to the Super Bowl, it wasn't quite as special, only because we didn't know any better. We always sort of referred to ourselves as the happy dummies. Because we were doing stuff that no one gave us any chance to do. And we just kept winning and winning and winning. Um, in fact, I remember being on the bus at the Silverdome after Super Bowl 16. And, you know, we're playing music and we're, we're, we're laughing and joking. And suddenly it just hit me. And I made mention, I just, because we, we were in next mode. We didn't care who we were going to play. It was like, okay, who's next? Who's next? 
who's next? And you got on that bus and you started celebrating and it just sort of hit you. You went, oh, wow, there's nobody else to play. We beat everybody. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the first time you do that, it's kind of jarring because you are so focused and so zeroed in on what you're doing um, that it does have a definitive, you know, there's definitely a, a, a date that it just stops. Even for people that win, it just stops. And it, was, it, can, it can be kind of jarring, especially if you're as focused as you have to be to do it the right way. Now, you win the one, and then does it become like an addiction where you're the next year you're going, we got to win this? Or are you saying, we want to go out and we just want to play as best we can? Because it's like anything. You know, it goes, well, teams can't repeat, and this and that. I mean, as a player, that does that get into your head at all when you sit there and are preparing for the next season? Because you are the champions, and people you're going to be on people's yeah. radar. Well, you know, if we were thinking like that, um, we didn't show it very well because we had way too much fun as winners. I mean, way too much fun. Um, and, heck, we had about a dozen guys in that team that from the time we won the Super Bowl to the time we got together, you know, at, at many camps and going into training camp, those guys weren't even around. You know, they've been cut and released and gone. Um, and and we had a strike that year in 82, and that was terrible. Our, our focus was horrendous. Um, we played terrible that season. We were like three and six. It was, it was, it was only nine games. There was a Super People forget, 82, there was a Super Bowl tournament. They named X amount of teams to be in the tournament to win the Super Bowl. Um, <laughs> but... You know, that was one of the worst things and probably one of the best things because it really, it served as a as a, a way for everybody to, you know, appreciate what we had done and where we had been and, and focus on getting back there. Now, you end up getting to another Super Bowl and you win that. What's it like when you go into the second Super Bowl? Because one, you already have a ring. I mean, it's like people die for that ring, you know, in any sport. And it's always connected to a name. You know, they say, well, Marino never won a ring, blah, blah, blah. What is it like when you go into the second? Or is, or is it overwhelming, or do you feel more pressure because you want to get the second one? Or what is that like as a player? Well, you know, we had that terrible year in 82. 83, we had a, a really good year, and we lost to the Redskins in the NFC Championship game on what we thought was kind of a screw job, the official on the, on the officials, um, for whatever reason. Uh, it was a huge motivator to us the rest of the, that year and the, the next season that we wanted to take it out of everybody's hands and just drill people. And that 84 team, that was the best team I ever played on. So by the time we got to Super Bowl 19, getting ready to play Dan Marino and the, and the Dolphins, people, for some reason, weren't giving us that much credit. But we were the one that was 17-1. and one. We were getting ready to be 18-1, and one, and no one had ever done that. Um, but for whatever reason, Marino was the bright, shiny penny, and they thought the passing game and all that was going to be the huge difference, and they were expecting to see this great high-tech offense, and sort of the wrong one showed up. And, and we had a, you know, we gained 500-and-something yards and scored, I think, 38 points, and we were we were on top of our game, <clears throat> excuse me, and that's 
that's a great feeling. But again, that was, we were in that next mode. So bang, bang, bang. We went game that year to Pittsburgh at home, um, which was kind of inexcusable. But, you know, it, only in retrospect, when you're going through it, it's like, eh, well, what the hell? Right. It happened. <laughs> um, and, but you win that second Super Bowl, and people start the, – the good thing is people start figuring out, you know, this team's got some pretty good players on it. You know, one time can be kind of a fluke in, in all sports. But you start backing it up, and you're constantly there. People start figuring out that you're pretty good. Now, then you end up winning a third, which it's – does that become – does it become redundant at all, or is it still that elated feeling? As you said, you, you appreciate it more, but when you get to the third, you know, when you win the third, it's you're a well-oiled machine. The, the talk of Dynasty starts. What's that like? It's, it's, but the, 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 every accomplishment like that is, is completely self-contained in, in that, you know, a team from, a Super Bowl team from 84 is, nothing like the Super Bowl team from 88 or 81 or 89 or 95 or every team is completely different. So, you know, not, it's like having a, uh, a platinum album. You know, if you have a platinum album in 1981 and you do it, get another one in 1985 and another one in 1988, they're all completely separate, and there's a completely different process of doing it. Um, you know, for my dad's old occupation, it's like the the rare people out there, but the ones that have won multiple, you know, Academy Awards for various roles. Every every role is completely different. So, uh, you know, I always appreciated it sort of in that context. You know, not many people are involved in things that, that, that happen that often. Right. But every single one of them was completely, I mean, completely different. Now, they had some common elements, but the whole process of achieving it, like the, the 88 year we won, we weren't that good. We were disappointing. In fact, at one point we were damn near 500, like six and five, I think. And things were kind of going sideways. And then we got on a roll, and that roll took us all the way through. Now, when did you decide to retire, and how does it? And is that a hard thing for a player? Because the thing is now nowadays, no one really plays for their whole team except someone like Brady for so long. You were a Niner from beginning to end, you know, and that's and that's and now you never see that, but. When did you decide to retire? And is it tough because you are somewhat connected to the city and people know you? Mm -hmm. It was hard. I mean, probably about a month or so before, you know, or during the early in the playoffs that year, just kind of looking around, um, thinking about the process, thinking about, you know, doing everything again. Um, you know, and at that time, I had a advertising and promotions agency. I had started with a friend about three years before that, that I was doing a lot of work with in the off season and even during the season. Um, that was doing really well, and I just, you know, I I had always, like I said, when I was a kid, I'd always read about athletes, and there was one common thing 
not for all of them, but for most, is most most athletes, most great players do not know how to when to quit. They don't know how to put, you know call off the jam to use a roller derby term. Um, but I was at the point right there where things are going really good in my life away from football. Um, and football obviously was going really well. And I just thought it was time to move on and do something else. And, and I'm, in retrospect, would I have liked to have stayed for that next year when they won another one? Hell yeah. Right. <laughs> more is better. Contra- contrary to what people will tell you, <laughs> more is better. So four is better than three. Right. But, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't regret I don't regret it a single day. I just, you know, for the physical, the physical toll and the trauma and, you know, and plus not, that's not even mentioning the little petty things about being 32, 33 years old and being in training camp and having them blowing air horns in the morning for you to go to bed or to wake up and, you know, getting told when to eat and when to get up and when to go to bed and when to do all these things. It's like, I I just sort of had enough, right <laughs> at that point. <laughs> well, you retire, and then you'd start. You do the light beer commercials, which you know. If I'm I'm 53, and if you're if you're over 45 or or 50, the light beer commercials were just the best. I mean, that was one of the best ad campaigns back in the day for years. I mean, even you know. Beer commercials were great back then. They're not wearing as commercials now. Even when it was Norm Crosby for, I think, Anheuser or whatever, Miller Natural Light. How did that come about? How did the commercial come about? And it's just funny that your father was an actor and you used to go read lines when you were younger and, you know, read with them. And then you end up getting a commercial. How does that happen? Um, You know, it was born born through uh, my agent at the time, a guy named Leonard Armato. Uh, and, and Leonard had mentioned that he had talked to a, an ad agency person if I'd be interested in doing a, a beer commercial. And I was like, uh, I don't know, like you mean that Miller Lite, that John Madden thing? And they said, well, yeah, same company, that's the one. Um, but they've got a whole different kind of, you know, take on what they want to do with you. So, you know, I listened to it and talked to him for a little while and, I did it. It was a, a hugely um, enjoyable experience all the way around. Um, got to do a bunch of the all-star commercials. It was it was a, it was a fantastic group, and it was my real education into you know re-education, I should say, into sort of the L.A. Hollywood uh, movie slash TV business because I'm. Um, there was a, a director that did a bunch of the, the early the, the early Miller Lights, guy named Bob Giraldi, and he was doing mine. And they were they were shooting a couple of cutaway shots, and I was standing in the back, and I, I they they fast forwarded to where I was in one, and they had the lower third graphic, and it said uh, Randy Cross All Pro Center underneath my name, and I. I, I tapped him on the shoulder and he turned around. I said, excuse me, Bob, um, just for your information or for whatever, um, I was never an all-pro center. I was an all-pro guard. <laughs> and he looks over, he looks at me, he looks over his other shoulder at the, at the um, advertising agency person and goes, did you check that out? 
And the ad guy goes, yeah, yeah. And Geraldi looks at me and goes, now hold on a second. Were you, were you, or were you not all pro? I said, yeah, I don't know, four, five, six times. He says, did you or did you not play guard and center? And I said, yeah, I played guard and center. He goes, okay, fine, all pro, center. You're an all pro center. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no problem. Now, now, what's funny is you're in the commercials, and as a lineman and playing football, people don't see you a lot because you have your helmet on, and you know after the games they don't really see you that much. But if you're in those commercials, and back then it wasn't TV on every network, so when you saw commercials, you saw the people. Did more people start recognizing you after you had such a successful career? Did you start getting noticed on the street more because of those commercials? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No doubt. No doubt. Especially for the, the whole punchline of, of my, my particular commercial. I'll never forget the first time my mom saw, saw it. Uh, she was like, she was just kind of laughing, you know, because, I mean, I bend over to pick something up, and the lady points at my butt and says, oh, you're Randy Cross. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know. It was it was crazy, but yeah, yeah. Once once that happened, it was uh, it was something that stood with, stayed with me for quite a while because those those commercials, we were doing some variation of those commercials for I guess another five or six years after I retired. So when you played, did you ever suffer a very bad injury, or were you pretty much did you miss any seasons or lengthy time, or what was your injury pattern like? Um. My worst injury wasn't playing. I was, after our first Super Bowl, I was at a um, fundraiser, and I had a mishap at a uh, at this fundraiser, and it was kind of a competitive, it was a race thing through this kiddie park area, and I fell off this, this thing um, that I was, <laughs> whatever the name was, but I dislocated my foot and broke my leg, and this was on Memorial Day. So obviously that's a little close to the season. Um, I played in the last preseason game, and I played with uh, like a Lexan, which is it's a Lexan shield that they made. It was a plastic shield over the outside of my leg because basically, according to the X-rays, that bone, that fibula, was broken until well through that whole season, plus into probably sometime into February, March before it had a chance to really heal completely. So that was the worst thing I played with besides the dislocating the foot and tearing all the ligaments. Um, and then in 85, at the right next to last game, I think it was week 15, I uh, blew my knee out down in New Orleans. But bad injuries, those were the only two bad ones during my career. Now, I saw a, a clip of an interview from you last year, I believe, on Super Bowl Row, and you were talking to someone about donating your brain to uh, mm -hmm. after it. Now, what made you decide to do that? And I want you to tell the listeners, you know, and I, I want to know, you know, what's your take on what is happening to the game with head injuries? I mean, what made you decide, and it's a great thing to do because you played for a long time, and I, said, and I heard you said you got knocked out at least – once on, on each level you played, and I'm sure you've had various concussions that you may not even have known about because it was a different protocol then. But what made you decide to do that? And do you think that a lot of players now who are retired will start doing it? I hope so. 
And more importantly, I, I hope people that played at any level um, will pay attention enough to it. You know, if you're a guy that's got, you know, say three young sons and you played in high school, um, you ought to think about donating your brain just for the chance that it will advance the knowledge of what they're trying to do. Because CTE is is no joke, and the whole the whole idea and the prevalence of things like you know early onset dementia and Alzheimer's and those type of things are are scary as hell for people, and it makes people uncomfortable talking about it, especially people that have participated in the game as long as I did. But you know, my main motivation in doing that was kind of a little bit of a payback to the game that's given me a lot and a little bit of a, a heads up to the people that are just starting the game, that they can make an informed decision um, as to what they want to do. You know, people don't remember now as much, but, you know, back in the day in boxing specifically, you know, you used to see the old punch drunk boxers and people would go, ah, that's just that you got hit in the head too much. And we never put two and two together that it had anything to do with possibly being a football-related thing. But you know, as we've learned, unfortunately, with way too many examples, it, it does work that way. But if you look at the study, you know, the, the Concussion Legacy Foundation, the group that I gave my brain to, um, they've done... And they've released some studies that have just absolutely stunned people. You know, like 110 of 111 brains that were donated showed signs of CTE. Well, that's a skewed group. That's that's a group of people that had issues and their families donated the brains. And yeah, they all had this particular trait. That doesn't mean that everybody that plays football gets that. So my point is they've got to be able to to have normal brains, maybe abnormal brains, maybe semi-abnormal brains for a point of reference as to how this starts, where it comes from, you know, and then eventually how they can keep it maybe from developing and or, you know, mitigate, mitigate the effects. So it's about that informed decision because you owe that to the people that are playing the game. And if you played the game before, what, 2003 or so? You didn't know any of this stuff. You'd never heard about CTE. You'd never even heard about the chances of this ha happening with a traumatic brain injury. No clue. None. So no one before then made an informed decision. And we didn't have that information because people in the NFL decided they didn't want to release it because it'd be bad for business. Well, they were right about that. They were wrong for doing it, but they were sure as hell right about that. Now, where do you see the NFL heading with this? Do you think a lot of families will not let their kids play now? And, you know, because I hear I have friends who have, you know, they have let their kids playing baseball, you know, different things, your first love, baseball. Do you think people will sit there and really take this to heed and say, we don't want our kids to play? And how do you think that affects the future of the NFL? Well, I, I, I hope it doesn't affect the future of the three stages of football that I played in, and that's high school, college, and professional. The knowledge 
and the technology should change and the techniques taught should change. But as we learn more about it, you know, don't you really think that, you know, young kids, most little kids can't even hold a damn helmet up, much less wear one safely or wear pads. I don't think personally young kids have any business playing until 14 years old. Right around there, right around that ninth grade window, eighth, ninth grade window, that's about as early as you need to be playing football. That's not to say you can't play flag football. That's not to say you can't be taught the techniques you're going to need when you get to get to play football at a higher level later. But if there is a net effect from this and more and more of these informed decisions, I think that's where it's going to where it's going to go. It's it's going to mean a lot of these you know pee wee and youth football leagues uh, hopefully go away. Now I was listening to your pod, like I watched your podcast because I'm on iTunes. Now, what made you come up with the, the the podcast? And people, it's called Unsafe Spaces USA. It can be found at unsafespacesusa.com, randycross.com, iTunes, and I believe Stitcher. What made you come up with the, what made you want to do a podcast? I know you had, were an analyst for football and you did stuff like that. You had your own radio show. But what made you go into the uh, podcast world? And how did you come up with your name, Unsafe Spaces? Uh, it was sort of a, a spinoff of a... You know, I, I think unsafe things can, I guess, teach you the most and at times make you uh, make you uncomfortable, but they can be very informative. So, you know, people like to always go to their little safe spaces when it comes to uh, either conversations or almost most anything, it seems. And I, I, I tend to enjoy the latter. I tend to enjoy the un the unsafe spaces when it comes to uh, learning things. So that was the main place it came it came from. I mean, the unsafespaces.com wasn't taken, so I added the USA. So your podcast covers different areas. I know you had talked to a gentleman about the opioid uh, crisis. And now, mm-hmm. what is it, was were prescription drugs when you were a football player very rampant? Were they very easy to get? Did people just give you something and you got got it, you got put back in? And and is that still prevalent in the game? Um, it was it was fairly prevalent early in my career, and I think later as it went along, um, they, they varied by organization. I didn't happen to play for an organization that it was that that prevalent i know i've talked to other guys but that it was much much more accessible and things were there and 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 readily available but you know i think it's something that we've gotten semi-educated about so and i you know it it took i think probably made it maybe an example of what brett Favre went through um to open some eyes in the football business but that's not to say you know, there's still not people putting out, you know, coming out of the game where the access is just too easy and there are guys that come out with problems. But nowhere nowhere near, I think, what it was at one time because the, the game has changed considerably. It is, it is a, bit, a bit safer. I mean, one of the, they, they've changed the, bo- the blocking techniques that are allowed 
used to be able to do a, a very wide range of things to people, and it wasn't illegal. And so I think they, they took care of some defensive players when it came to that, and they've taken care of offensive players with other things that have happened. Now, you said about the blocking techniques. When you played, was there any players that you just hated going up against or any players who just talked so much crap that you wanted to just sit there and go, I got, I got to knock this guy down? <laughs> oh, there always were. There was, there was one guy who ran his mouth constantly later in my career. Uh, and ironically, he was a Niner um, after I left. A guy named Tim Harris. He was an outside linebacker, kind of a pass rusher type. He played for the Packers back then, um, who was a, a constant irritant. Um, then you had the guys that were, you know, whether it was Dexter Manley or LT or they were, they were there, but they were more of an irritant by their by their play than they were by their by their words. I, I, I found guys that were easy to easy to talk mess and always run in their mouth, weren't always the best to pay attention to what the hell they were doing. <laughs> I always wonder, though, when you watch football on TV, how, I mean, it must be such self-discipline to just not gr- grab out and hold someone. I mean, did you ever, did you ever get that, that, that instinct, just, I want to just grab this guy and throw him down, but you can't. It must be sort of frustrating sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't stop people from doing it now, does it? <laughs> no, no. I mean, it, 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 it's also how you're taught, how you're raised, um, not to get in the positions where that happens. Um, it, it's it, it's hard to it's it, it's hard to defend because you see stuff all the time. Like you know, they'll run a replay, and some guy will literally just bear hug somebody and stop them. It's like, come on, dude. What kind of technique is that? You know, your hands are all on the or or the guy that pushes the guy from behind on the you know the the ninety five yard kickoff return, right. but some guy just pushes some guy down, and you look at him and go, "Why the hell did you do that?" The worst is when um, the play when the play is like it has no bearing on the play, and a guy it's usually a wide receiver makes some stupid block yeah. to the back, and you're going, "Dude, you were like ten yards away. It's not even close." Yeah, and you know what? They were doing that before I played, and they're going to be doing it long after we, you know, (laughs) those of us that are still here. It's inexplicable. And good teams, great team. I mean, everybody has people that does do things like that. It's just, it's, you can't fix stupid. (laughs) Now, I got to ask you, because as I said, I grew up a Philly fan, and I'm an Eagles fan. I still am an Eagles fan, even when I lived in L.A. Mm -hmm. And it's awful living in L.A. because you're, Everyone's different fans, and you always everyone going, how many rings you got? Yeah. I come back here, and it's great. Give me the top, the three worst places you've played at. The worst cities. Well, uh, that's really kind of easy, I think. Um, I think the number one as far as rough places to play I would say RFK in Washington, um, Giants, the old Giants Stadium in New York was right there, and that'd be kind of a toss-up between uh, the Packers used to play at Milwaukee, 
half their home games you just play in Milwaukee. Playing in that old, decrepit, <laughs> no good place um, was was a very un, you know unpleasant unpleasant experience. Yeah, I, of all the places we played, I, I'd say those are the those are the three I, I enjoyed the least. Okay. Par- partially for partially for the accommodations and partially for the uh, the fan feedback. You know, Candlestick. I mean, I mean, not Candlestick. Where you played is gone. What is it like when you see a new stadium? And do you think that adds to the game, or it takes the 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 the, the, the feeling out of the game when you have these highfalutin, unbelievable stadiums? Yeah, it takes a little of the personality out. You know, it's it's. For an Eagles fan, as much as they don't miss the vet, yeah, the Lincoln the Lincoln's just not the same. It doesn't have that same inhospitable, bone chilling <laughs> kind of feel to it on a nice December day. Um, it just doesn't have it. It just I mean you, you can you can have all the all the foo foo um, you know pulled pork nachos and and craft beers and all that other garbage, but it just doesn't have the same feel. And I, and I think that you can say the same thing in San Francisco between Candlestick and the new Levi Stadium. The the old places had the personality. Um, the new places, I, I think, are, are sort of, in general, they're yet to acquire souls. Well, that's, I, I agree with you. Well, I want to thank you for coming by today and talking to me. Um, now, tell me more. The podcast, how many episodes you're on season two? How many episodes do you plan to do this season? I'm going to do one every week. Um, I'll be doing them. Uh, so, so the answer is 52. God willing and the creek don't rise kind of attitude. Uh, I'll be doing one every Wednesday from, from now until further notice. Uh, and it'll have... A little bit of everything, you know. We, of course, you know we'll keep the football flavor in it, but a little bit of sports, uh, a little bit of irreverence. Um, we had Chris Nowinski from the Concuss- Concussion Legacy Foundation uh, two weeks ago, talking about some of the things they're doing with CTE. I've got uh, Brittany Hughes on this week from uh, MR MRTC TV. A um, little bit different for me because it doesn't have much of a, a sports connection, but it's somebody that does some does some fun work and likes to likes to prod and motivate people. Cool. Well, you know, I want to thank you, Sam. We can find that on uh, iTunes, and then it's also on your website, which is uh, you randycross.com will take you to unsafespacesusa.com, if I'm correct. That's right. It's on iTunes and SoundCloud. And- Got a page on Twitter and Facebook that'll lead you to the same to, to the same places. Well, I want to thank you for coming on, Randy, and uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully the Eagles will win, and uh, it's for me <laughs> be a great year to move back. So, people, go go check out his podcast. It's, it's great. I watched it today, and you know, you can really watch. You can see someone who's played the game, and they'll talk about football, but he talks about a lot, bunch of other stuff. So, go check him out. Also, people, follow on me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have 670 episodes up there. You can email me, cooper at coopertalk.net, and I'll get back to you. Instagram's coopertalk1, which I do a lot of pictures of food, because you know when I had that health problem a few years ago, I wrote the cookbook, Stop the Salt. 
you go to StopTheSalt.com. It's 120 low-sodium recipes. No pictures to intimidate you guys. Long list of ingredients. So check that out. And uh, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.